Hi, and welcome to the Learning to Learn podcast, where we provide tools and resources to educators and parents of kiddos who could use a little extra help. With our combined 50 plus years of experience, we've helped thousands of students improve their academic proficiency, boost their test scores, and chart a course to a lifetime of growth, all by discovering the joy of learning. Look us up or connect with us at mmeslearn.com. I'm your host, Nehemiah White, and today, again, we have with us the founder of Mrs. Myers Education Services, Tammy Myers. Great to have another go at it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Nehemiah. Tammy, uh, today we're going to be talking about why kids are struggling in their current education environment. We're going to look at, hoping to look at some stats, um, look at what are some things that are contributing to why kids are falling behind, and then some of the primary concerns that most people have with our current environment. Uh, so, Tammy, I wonder if we can start by getting an understanding from you based off of what you remember <laughs> and just based off of your years of experience. What, what are some of the stats that will help people get their mind around uh, where kids are at today? Well, my goodness, Nehemiah, what a broad description. You know, there are a lot of people concerned for various reasons about today's education. Obviously, parents are concerned, right? They've uh, suffered over two years of learning loss because of the COVID pandemic and the way that education was presented to children and their um, involvement in that academic process. We have more children being homeschooled now than ever before. That environment has grown significantly. And so we have parents as teachers trying to compensate for uh, learning loss and catch their students up as well. Parents are obviously concerned, and and I'm sure we'll touch on that. Uh, Teachers are concerned. Teachers are at their wit's end. I mean, they have been struggling for over a decade to educate our students and and level them up to to grasp those gains for literacy and Mm -hmm. math. And the pandemic just kind of pushed them over the edge. So a lot of teachers are at a crossroads. You know, they're burned out. They've done what they knew. They've used the tools they've had, but nothing seemed to work for them. So they left the profession. So then, so we have teachers that are still there and then teachers that have sought other professions. Then we have the administrators and the the school boards. They're concerned because test scores aren't moving. They're not changing in in the right trajectory to show progress and gains in learning. And then the last thing is that industries are concerned because they are not getting a workforce that is literate in reading or math to be able to perform the jobs that we need to have to continue to grow industries in our country. Mm-hmm. We have significant regions in our country that are undereducated and are losing jobs because of our education system, the way we're educating students. What are some of the stats behind this? Like you gave some stats last podcast about 80% of kids oh, are not great proficient. Sure, third grade, third grade reading scores. Okay. So third grade reading scores have been a measure for a number of years, well over a decade or more. And 
uh, nationally, third grade reading scores demonstrate that only about 30% of our students are reading at grade level mm. at third grade, 30%. So that leaves maybe 35%. I think it's around 64% is what the Department of Ed is saying. So that leaves 35% reading proficient, 65% are not reading proficiently at third grade. So that in itself has been correlated to students that are on the wrong side of the law. Prison populations are gauged by third grade reading scores. So if 64% of third grade students cannot read at grade level, then there is a percentage of those students that will end up in prison. And so the prison systems, they project where to build prisons and how many beds or cells to put in those prisons based on third grade reading scores in a geographic area. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of data that goes into that decision-making and a lot of money goes into that. Mm -hmm. For a, a, a child that can't read at third grade, they are expecting to spend well over a quarter of a million dollars to house that child in a prison. Think about that. That's a lot of money that goes into those systems. So this is what's happening to kids that are falling outside of the proficiency scale. Yes. So then we have maximum maybe 40% of our kids that are proficient yeah. uh, in the, at their third grades. And um, the stats behind, I mean, we talked some of this last time and you spoke to it again just now. Uh, some of the uh, stats of where they go to or how it can impact societies if they are proficient. And then you also spoke to how, like, what's happening to some of these kids that are falling behind. Well, this is the reality. They struggle uh -huh. to get a job. Let me throw another one at you okay. before you go too far. There is a, a research paper out of the University of Wisconsin. This was done several years ago, that incoming freshman students, 70% of incoming freshman students are not reading at a college level and are in remedial courses at college. So they've been accepted. They've taken their ACT. They've been accepted into colleges. But 70% of those freshman students are not ready to learn in college. That's, that is important. I mean, that's staggering because we talk about the importance of that secondary education. Mm -hmm. So, you, I mean, we're here focused on primary, but I mean, we have so much of our educational structure that is built on the importance of that secondary education, getting kids college degrees so that they can be a better member of the workforce. But what you're saying is that 70 percent of the kids that are applying that are applying and enrolling in our colleges, mm -hmm. they just frankly are not ready to do the work at college level proficiency. Exactly. And these are these are children that have graduated. Okay. They've made it through elementary school and high school. You know, we're not talking about the dropout rate, which is another statistic for based on third grade reading. You know, we're talking about children that have navigated the academic system and been able to be accepted at the college level and they are struggling at that level even. So where do we fix it? Where do we start? We have taken the approach that we start early, right? We start at pre-literacy level, learning to learn, preschool, first grade, second grade, third grade. We can remediate fourth and fifth grade, but 
we're hoping by that time, these children are well on their way to learning on their own. They're independent learners. Okay, so let me touch on that then, Tammy. So you've made a, a really helpful leap here. You've gone all the way up to college. How are these being, these kids being affected at the college level? Mm-hmm. And then you come all the way back full circle to our primary education. So what are the primary concerns with modern education systems that are leading to what you're describing? I feel that the, um, I feel like it's, it's multifaceted, first of all. There are a number of education theories that have been applied that are ineffective for children, and they have been applied globally across the board without regard of how children learn. And I feel like there's a lack of integration of the psychology theories of learning, the cognitive theories of learning, of how how does our, our brain work to help us learn. And, you know, the lack of that integration, both of those areas of knowledge have kind of taken their own route to learning. And in very few places do they associate with each other. And I, I feel like that's a misstep. The psychological and the cognitive. The psychological and the education theory. Okay, so the education theory and then the psychological. Psychological avenues, the psychological theories of learning. So there, you know, the psychology theories of learning focus on cognition and memory, right? That that high level executive function. We talk about that in education, but we don't do it well, right? Because we are going on these education theories that leave out this theory of how our bodies are designed to work to learn. And we have uh, multi-modalities that are used to learn. The primary modalities for learning are auditory, the hearing, visual, the vision, what we see, and then kinesthetic. The kinesthetic involves movement and, and, and tactile, the, the touch, the senses. Now, we have other modalities for learning, but those are the three primary modalities for learning that actually anchor those memories neurologically in our brain for easier recall. Okay, so what you're saying is that our modern education system, if, if they're not completely discounting or what appears discounting the cognitive psychological aspect of learning, they maybe they're not paying as much close attention to the cognitive psychological aspect and leaning more on the education theory. Absolutely. Um, okay. the, and it's not a discount. I, I don't want to say they're, they're discounting it or saying okay. it doesn't count at all. Mm-hmm. I believe it's just a lack of acknowledgement, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding how to apply it in a way that we can we can teach children how to learn. So much of what our teachers get with these, you know, curriculum in a box is what to learn. Um, and I feel kind of funny saying curriculum in a box because we have curriculum in a box. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. But it, so, you know, there, it is a little ironic. Um, but the process is different, right? It's the way that we teach children how to learn. You use that curriculum as a tool. You know, it's not the be all end all because you open a box or you hand a child a worksheet. It's the way you teach that child to think about that worksheet, to think about those tools in the box, to, to work with those manipulatives for problem solving um, and to, to scaffold, to build on previous knowledge and previous experiences. 
So it's not just, you know, a psychological theory and an education theory. It's the, it's because they're not married. It's not, they're not integrated well. And a lot of teachers are taught you open a curriculum and you read it like it's a recipe, right? And the recipe lists the ingredients. But if you don't do something with those ingredients, you never get anything. So that's a really helpful clarification there that they're they're not discounting the cognitive psychological aspect. They're making them also almost mutually exclusive. Yes. They're doing cognitive here, education theory here. Yes. And that's what you touched on last time. Yes. Right. You, I mean, you just touched again on that whole uh, how to versus what to exactly. the how versus the why or the what versus the how. Exactly. And so what it sounds like is one of the biggest concerns with the modern education system is that they are one, they're learning heavier on the what than the how. Mm -hmm. And then they could really improve from an integration of the psychological and education theories. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. I mean, why do you think there was such an uproar about core curriculum standards? Right? Core curriculum standards is just a what. It's the list of what. It's it's the measurement that we use to know what children know, but it doesn't tell us how they learn. And if they don't learn it, it doesn't tell us how to help them learn it. It just tells us what they don't know or what they know. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful, uh, especially kind of specifically. Can you give us to help our listeners envision this? Maybe as they're thinking about their school or their district or whatever the case may be, mm-hmm. or even how they're doing it in their own classroom. Can you give them some specifics of how you've observed this, either in the classroom or in a broader school? Hmm. Well, I think an example would be spelling. There are worksheets given to children that identify pattern words. And all of the words are listed on the worksheet with the pattern in a a lighter color. So the children are supposed to trace the words, okay, all of it, and recognize that that pattern is in a lighter color. But then there are sentences with blanks. And the children are to read the sentences and figure out which pattern word goes into the blank based on the clues in the sentence. So they're giving a child the opportunity to demonstrate, we would call that semantic knowledge, relationship knowledge. Because if I said, um, if we're sitting at the table and I said, oh, would you please pass the salt end? You would know pepper, right? It'd pop in your head because I gave you a semantic cue of salt. So a fill-in-the-blank sentence is like that. It gives you the clues so that you know which word to put in the blank. And so um, this worksheet is doing that. It's the, the children have to read it, figure out the clue, and put the word in the blank. Now, they're trying to marry this cognitive knowledge of, of applying previous knowledge to know which word to put in the blank. But what they're not considering is that that's not helping the child spell that word or understand the sequence of those phonemes for the word because the word is already in 
on the sheet. It's just written in a lighter color. And so all they're doing is copying that word for sequencing. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So learning to spell, they're making associative connections versus cognitive, like, uh, so, I don't know. I, I'm, so the cognitive is understanding the meaning of the word by applying it in a fill-in-the-blank sentence. Okay. Okay. And okay. I understand that. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yep. Okay. But it doesn't help the child spell the word. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, you have to look at it like spelling, especially in the English language. And, and that is a whole other topic. Um, spelling is only a sequence of symbols. Right. So letters are only symbols. Same thing as triangle, square. So it's a shape. Right. It's a shape. It's a symbol. So letters are shapes used as symbols that represent sounds and letters for words. So if you break it up all the way back, we're teaching children to organize these shapes, organize these symbols in a sequence that represent meaning. So if a child is a poor speller, getting to the meaning of what that word is is not going to help them sequence those symbols. It's good. It's a good cognitive process, but there's no connection with spelling. It's un- That's understanding the meaning, which is important, but it's a little bit out of sequence. Mm. Okay. So, so what I'm here, so this, the, yeah, I hear what you're saying. That's a really good example from a spelling standpoint, because my, my own kids experience this, right? So at my own school, they use certain methods of teaching them how to write, how to spell, how to associate words and, mm-hmm. and concepts. So that, that I feel like is a really helpful specific mm-hmm. for both those in our classroom and then those that are at home wondering. Let's talk about that just a little bit more. Okay. Because... Let's say a lot of parents and a lot of teachers believe that copying the word five times, ten times, maybe making each letter a different color or each word a different color, practicing sequencing those symbols repetitively is going to help with spelling. And again, I, I have witnessed where that falls short because There is a process called motor memory that does support spelling and writing. When you are writing a word and you're writing those symbols in sequence, your muscles start remembering it. Because if I were to ask you to write something down for me right now, you would write it down in a a whole word memory. You're not going to, in your mind, say T-H-E. You're going to write the and THE is just going to come out. That is considered a motor memory. For children learning to spell, they are not there yet. And having them sequence those words five times, write those words five times, is not going to anchor that motor memory. They have to understand what that those symbols as a unit represent a whole before they write. And that is not what's happening. A lot of the students I work with, they can copy the words. They can do all the pretty colors. 
but they can't tell you what that word is. They can't read it. So I believe and I practice children learn to read the words before they spell them. I have a curriculum, it's called Spelling Club. And the whole premise of Spelling Club is having the, the children assimilate the, the symbols in a, in a unit, a single unit. For example, C-A-T. So C-A-T spells cat. If I put the symbols, the shapes out of a C, an A, and a T, I want the child to recognize that unit of symbols means cat. That's the word cat. If they can't tell me that's the word cat, I'm not going to ask them to spell it. Why would I? How are they going to recall that? It's not going to help them understand that when they think cat, they write cat. Exactly. They can copy that, but it may not coordinate to what they're thinking. Right. Got so it. so we do this whole process uh, called the MID method, the match, identify, do. And the matching piece is the child being able to look at a unit of symbols and read it, know what that word is, then be able to recognize it, identify it, then be able to write it. It's a whole process of learning how to learn. Mm. Okay, that's helpful. So some helpful specifics around what schools are doing that is contributing to our kids struggling. Now let's touch on, uh, with the time we have left, specific intervention methods, if you oh, will. Sure. So uh, there's a lot of different inter intervention programs out there. We're built on an intervention method. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. So what are some primary concerns with most, so speaking really broadly here, most intervention programs? Well, let's back up just a little bit from that um, on intervention programs. I think one of the broad issues that we have with the bureaucracy of education is the inability to pivot quickly when an, a program's not working, right? You need the ability to change quickly and to shift to what's going to work and help children learn. Um, we have experience with the school district that they have a policy that they cannot accept new curriculums for 10 years. So if they purchase a new curriculum for their school and two years in it is not working, they can't change that curriculum for another eight years. Okay. I mean, so you're talking about generations of issues and lack of learning based on an ineffective tool being used in a school system. Okay. So we need ways where schools can adapt and, and pivot faster so that they can recognize voids and fill those voids quickly. You have some talented teachers out there that can do it and they can figure it out and know it. But a lot of our teachers are very, very overwhelmed and they're not getting the administrative support they need. And so they can't physically or mentally address those deficits. Plus a lot of our students are so far behind that the, the teachers are really struggling with the wide variety of learning ability in their classroom. So there's a lot of that that needs to be addressed too. All right, now we want to go to methods, right? Some of the methods. Yeah. A lot of the methods uh, that are being used are worksheet-based methods. And worksheet-based methods give you one plane of learning, uh, one dimension. 
of learning. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to cut worksheets because they can be effective, but personally, I feel like they should be used 10% of the time, 90% of the time our learning should be experience-based and utilizing multimodality approaches. We have a lot of our students and a lot of our classrooms, the primary mode of instruction and learning is auditory with very little support of visual or almost minimal or none of the kinesthetic. So it's really important to integrate those different modalities of learning to provide a whole experience for a child for the learning, because you don't want to give them an experience. And, and these are even for the kids that are not struggling, an experience where they just memorize. They memorize it. It goes into short-term memory. It might even go into midterm memory. Midterm memory lasts for about a week, you know, and get you through a spelling test. But it doesn't go into long-term memory. But if you give a child an experience and then they can apply that experience and then elevate that experience with the next level of learning, then it sticks with them for a lifetime and it becomes integrated to who they are and what they know. And then the next thing you know, they know things and they don't even know they know them. So it sounds like intervention programs, the, the vast majority of intervention programs are just carrying on the issues that we're seeing within our our broader education system. Mm -hmm. So our broader education system has struggled to marry the psychological theories to the education theories. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's really what our intervention programs are replicating. Mm -hmm. Would it be fair to say that a broad majority of intervention programs may be just replicating what the broader education system is teaching just in a smaller package or in a more detailed package? I think it's, I think that's simplified. No, I, I think you're right. I do think you're right, am I on that? That they're they're replicating those systems and they're potentially magnifying that. So for example, if, if you wanted a child a child to learn how to read and they're not learning that in their classroom, and then they've got this intervention program that instead of reading in their literature book, now they're reading three books. And um, one of the programs that I struggle with is the AR program, Accelerated Reader Program, because um, the children check out books at their level and they are leveled, and then they take this online test. But there's no instruction. There's no uh, conversation or feedback or, you know, there's no one listening to this child read for fluency. Even if the child is taking the books home and reading them to their parent, you know, 15, 20 minutes a night. The parent doesn't understand how that is going to affect the child when they go to take this test or what they're trying to, you know, what is the goal? You just know they're accelerated reader and they get points when they take a test. And if they pass the test, then they get another book. So that is not teaching literacy. That's just exposure. That's all it is. Like that would be saying, that would be like taking a child to the library and saying, you can pick out as many books as you want, but you don't teach them to read. Interesting. That makes sense. And, and I mean, some of this stuff, right, there's some contrasting views within the educational system. That's why we have all the 
people, the players within the education system there are. So in these conversations, there's obviously programs that are being used broadly and they're being used for a specific purpose. But it's from a Myers method standpoint, these are some of the concerns that you've identified that have led you to develop some of the programs that you have, which we'll get into in future episodes. But it's really helpful to hear you, Tammy, speak to the the specific concerns, how the the you know juxtapositions of the educational system, and then how intervention programs are trying to address that, but maybe maybe falling short, and how all that ties back to where our kids are at today and why they're struggling. You've spoken to that, so I, we've we've gone pretty long today on on the podcast, but I think it was I think it's really helpful actually, and I think it's going to be worth it. From a, the time standpoint, whoever's listening today, uh, I think some of these concepts are really helpful to establish a framework for what we're going to be talking about as we go forward. Mm-hmm. So I, I think we'll wrap it up today. Tammy, appreciate the, I guess, the broader perspective. And next time, we're going to be leaning into a little bit of your story, which I'm, I've, I've heard a little bit before. I, some of our listeners may have heard before, but uh, I'm anxious to hear maybe some of the details that you have forgotten about until you talk about it again. <laughs> sure, sure. And I, I just want to end this session with saying that we have some very talented teachers and we need to capitalize on their ability to teach children how to learn, not just what to learn. And I do think a lot of our curriculum presently constrains that talent and our teachers are not able to use that talent effectively. And I think we're seeing that in some of our outcomes. I really appreciate that, Tammy. Yeah, you're welcome. And thanks for joining us again today. And uh, we look forward to the next one. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you again for joining us today. Uh, We look forward to you joining us again uh, next time on the Learning to Learn podcast. Have a great one.